Tov. Today's daf is Lamed Chet, and um, we pick up. We are a good deal behind. We pick up at the um, um, very, very, the very bottom, like last word of Lamed Zayin Aleph. So we're going to try to keep up a good pace today, uh, even though it's a very juicy topic. Okay, so the Gemara says like this: Tanan Hasam. Okay, now we're on Lamed Zayin Aleph. We taught over there. We're going through the Mishnayot and Shvi'is that relate to to relate to Shmitas uh, not just Prusbal, but Shmitas Ksafim in general. So now we're getting into some of the mechanics of how Shemitah's Ksafim works. Somebody comes during the Shemitah year. Now the language here is during the Shemitah year. Rashi says it means after Shemitah has passed and the, and the, and the debt has been, um, has been annulled. But I want to get back to that. Anyway, so uh, somebody comes to pay back a, a, a debt and you're supposed to say, Mishamitani. You're supposed to say to him, like uh, the creditor is supposed to say to the debtor, I annul the debt. I release you from it. Um, but if the debtor says, nevertheless, I still want to pay it back, look, I feel bad. You lent me $1,000. You know, it's nice that you're releasing me and that there's Shemitah, but I want to make good on my, on my debts. So you cavil him in it. You're allowed to take the money back from him. This is the matter of the Shemitah. So what is that? So the Dvar is the word of Dibur, right, to speak. And therefore what it's telling you is, is that you are supposed to release him um, through words. You're supposed to basically say, ani, I release you. So that's interesting, right? Let's say you don't say that, right? Is the idea of Shemitah's Meshametes Ksafim, right? It says, Shemot Kobama Sheyado, etc., right? Um, is that telling you that you have an obligation to annul the debt? We always assume that it meant that Shemitah automatically annuls the debt. Let's say you didn't say this. Is the debt still annulled um, or not? So, um, so yeah. So the, the so, so it's a good question. You could say it's annulled, but you nevertheless have a, have an obligation to personally reinforce that through your words. It's not exactly clear the relationship between your verbal mishamit ani and the automatic sense that the debt is annulled. The rush has the best resolution. I didn't check it, but if I'm remembering, if I'm remembering from memory, the rush basically says the difference is during the shemitah and after the shemitah. The Rush says that this is specifically Bishmita, that during the year of the Shemitah, the debt still exists, but you are supposed to release, not demand it. You are supposed to be Shemot. You are supposed to say Mishametani. Okay, so you're an active participant in, because if you think about it, right, it, otherwise it's not like that there's a releasing from debts on Shemitah. Shemitah is when everything else is released, but no, that guy still owes you money, right, and it only gets annulled at the end of Shemitah. So really, like during Shemitah, you can collect your debts? Like that seems to deeply go against the sense we have about what Shemitah is about. So the Rush actually says both are true. During Shemitah the debt exists and you're commanded not to demand it, not to exact it, and it's Zedvar HaShemitah. If somebody tries to pay it up during Shemitah, you're supposed to say, I release you from it. After Shemitah it automatically is a no. So the Rush actually has... Well, no, because, 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 well, maybe, but okay, but, uh, but, 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 but the point is that you have to you have to prevent the automatic annulment, right? If you want to collect it afterwards, right? During it, you can you can go through the sabbatical through the shmita without actively collecting it. Anyway, so that's a very nice uh, way that the rush reads this idea of bishmita, and that also explains why the guy, if he says Afa and I want to return it, that you are supposed to accept it because then he still owes you the money. The debt still exists. 
right? It's just that you're not allowed to demand it. You have to be have an obligation to release him. If he wants to pay it up on his own free will, right? So then, fine. That makes sense. There still is a debt there. It hasn't been erased yet. Okay, so it's a very nice read um, of this idea. Um, if you read it the other way, then you could say that even if the debt has been annulled or whatever, if a guy wants to make good on money he borrowed, even if tech, even if sort of as a as a sort of legal matter, there's no debt, you know, then it's the right thing to do to pay up. You got money from a guy, you give it back to the guy. Morally, sort of the same way, if you got a gift from somebody, if you got an invitation from somebody for Shabbos meal, you should reciprocate. You know, it doesn't have to mean that there's an official legal debt, but it still would be like the right thing to do. It's a moral, debt. It's a moral debt, right? Anyway, so but the rush reads it in this other way, which is a very, I think, powerful way of reading it. Okay, so you're supposed to say Mishamitani, and he's allowed, and if he says Avtichen, you're allowed to accept it from him. Now we're going to go to pushing that point about Avtichen as a way of getting your money back, and we're going to push it a little bit. Let's take a look. Um, Amar Rabba says Rabba, or Rabba have said the Tolilei Ad Amar Hachi. You can basically string him up until he says this. Until, yeah, until he basically says, um, even though you, you know, I want to return it to you. So he twists his arm, not literally, but whatever, we'll see cases about it. Anyway, you try to twist his arm to, to, give, to willingly give it back, even though he doesn't owe you the money. <laughs> so the Gemara says, um, you're allowed. Uh, you're allowed to yeah, you're allowed to. So the, it, gets, it starts to get a little funny, right? When he gives back, if he choosing to give back the money after you said don't say I'm giving this back to you because of the debt the debt no longer exists you've released him from the debt okay I don't owe you the money but I want to give this to you as a gift okay so if we're acknowledging that it cannot be given back in the context of paying a debt once if he is choosing to give it back how can you twist his arm to give it back if we're supposed to not acknowledge that there's a real debt here so the Gemara says so Amalei so Rabbi said back fine you pressure him until he says I'm giving it to you as a gift <laughs> so you don't acknowledge that it's in the context of a debt but you try to persuade him you know it's really the really right thing to, to do you know I mean he gave you all that money okay technically speaking the debt doesn't exist anymore but come on really you know anyway so that's what you do and you try to get him to understand his moral responsibility and then he gives it but he can't be giving it as payment of a debt the debt has already been erased, or if it's during Shemitah, the way the Rush understands, even if objectively it, it, it exists, the person is being mishamate, is not is, is not demanding it as a, as a as a debt. So you pay it up, but you don't pay it up as payment of a debt. Okay. I know. So this is interesting, right? This is the Gemara trying to, you know, um, um, you know, Eddie, 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 you're distracting. This is the Gemara trying to strike a similar balance to the whole phenomenon of, you know, of the Prisbol, right? But I would say that, I'm not so sure I would push it that. I mean, certainly when Russ says Talilei the Amar Hachi, he's trying to sort of like, you know, yes, it is a little like undermining. That is sort of acknowledging like there's some injustice here, right? It's nice to release people, but if a person's able to pay back and has the means or whatever, you know, it's appropriate um, to pay it back. Also, again, remember, according to the Rush, the way the Rush understands it, the debt really does exist. What the Torah is telling you is during the Shemitah year, you're not supposed to demand, you know, you're not supposed to, like, you know, exact payment, but the debt still does exist. So it works a little bit better according to the way the Rush understands. Okay, so anyway, so the Rush says like this. Now we're going to have some cases. 
He owed Rabba money. Um, I seen him in the LA Bishri, he brought it to him on Sviyas. Again, for the rush, it's beautiful. I mean, during the Shemitah year, right? So, Amalei, Mishamitani. So, Rabba did the right thing, and he said to him, Mishamitani. So, Shaklei, the Ozil, so fine. He took his money and he left. <laughs> Good. Okay. Also, Abaye. Now, again, this is the same Rabba and Abaye that were before, right? Remember, Rabba said you can pressure him, and Abaye challenged that. Abaye challenged that, okay? But now, uh, you know, Abaye is Rabba's Talmud. Rabba didn't get his money back. Even though Abaye said you're not supposed to pressure him or challenge that idea, let's see what Abaye does right now. Um, so, also, Abaye went. Um, he saw that he was, uh, he saw that Rabba was in anguish. Amalei, Amayativ Mar, why are you in, why, why are you so upset? Amalei, Hachiavi Mar, here's what happened. He owed me $10,000, he came to me back, I did what I was supposed to do, I said, Mishamidani, and then he just left. He didn't understand the, like, the little game we're supposed to play. Not the nuance, but like, we didn't, we didn't, he didn't keep to the script. Okay, so Azul so Abai went to him. Amalei, I'm to say Zuzay Lamar, did you bring your money back to, uh, you know, to pay, to pay back the master? Amalei, in, yes. Amalei, my Amalei, and what did Rabba say to you? Amalei, Mishamanan, he told me that he was uh, releasing me. Amalei, so Rabbi said to him, did you say to him, nevertheless, I still want to pay it back? Amalei, he said to him, well, I know, I didn't say that. Amalei, so Abai said to him, the Amartalei, Avapichen, had you said to him, Avapichen, Havashakrinu enoch, he would have been happy to take it from you. <laughs> so, Hashemiyah Samtinu Nihalei, the Amalei Avapichen. So, you know what? It would be a good idea now to bring the money back to him and to say, Avapichen. So, Shakrinu Minei, so, Vavalei Avapichen, Shakrinu Minei. So, so, when he did that, Rabba took the money. He, that's the way, oh, okay, I'm sorry, I'm again, Azel, Amtinu Nihalei, so he went, he brought it to him, Amtinu Nihalei, Vavalei Avapichen. He said to him, So Rabba was happy to take the money. So Amar, and then Rabba said about him, that, uh, that, that, that Torah scholar, well, you know, did not uh, know what he was doing initially. Like, you know, he wasn't paying attention. He forgot his lines. Okay, he should have, he should have learned enough Torah. It was a Mishnah. That you're suppo- now, the Mishnah doesn't say you're supposed to say Afal Pichain. It says, if you say Afal Pichain, if the guy says it, you can accept it. But he should have understood that that's his moral responsibility. Okay, that was a Mishnah. The Mishnah says if he says Afopichen you can take it from him okay so the funny thing though is that a guy that resisted the idea of pressuring the guy basically went ahead and applied subtle pressure to the guy okay so I mean it was his Rebbe that wasn't getting his loan paid back okay so now the Gemara says like this okay I'm a Rebbe Yehud Amar Rav said Rebbe the name of Rav Nachman excuse me Rav Nachman meaning a person can claim he had a prisbol and he lost it okay and he doesn't have to actually show a prisbol so here's another cool about prisbol before we saw that certain maybe didn't even have to write it you know maybe could just verbally make a declaration or there was a position in Shmuel that automatically there would be assumed a prusbo Rav Nachman is saying not that far but he's saying that even if you don't have to produce it to prove that you've written it okay <laughs> my time or why even the Zakina Rabban and Prusbo since it's a way, they've established it and it's a way of addressing these debts people would not have abandoned a permissible way of, of exacting debt and done it in transgression so we assume that everybody took care of it now, obviously sometimes people are negligent and they forget but nevertheless this is another nice big ga- gaping loophole like he doesn't say you're allowed to lie and say this but you know anyway once you don't have to produce it in court it obviously basically is yet another way to make it very easy for people to, to, uh, to um, you know collect their debts 
Now, when it came to Rav, a case like this, and the guy didn't, well, didn't produce a prisbo, Amalek, so Rav said to him, Is it possible you had a prisbo and you lost it? So, this is the case of open up your mouth to the mute. Meaning, you know, which is funny, because you imagine if a guy actually did write a prisbo and he lost it, he would have said something. Like, oh my God, I had it, I can't find it, or whatever. But the guy said nothing. Right? It's after Shemitah, I'm sorry. And the guy said, Oh, I don't know what to say. And I said, well, maybe you had a prisbo. So, oh yes, I did have a prisbo and I lost it. So, anyway, it does sound like there's a little wink and nod going on here. Okay? You're not supposed to do that. But no, you're supposed to. You're supposed to. Okay? Okay, yes. Um... Tanan, we talked. Wait a minute, we got a mission that says that with the creditor takes out his uh, his uh, the document and it doesn't have a prisbo, he cannot collect. So it seems to you need to produce the prisbo. You don't have to actually produce the prisbo. Another obviously possible explanation is that at the earlier time of the mission, as we've been seeing, prisbo was a more weighty and serious thing, even when it was created, and then later it became a much more trivial and easier thing to use to satisfy the requirements of karka and the other types of requirements so it was obviously even a more liberalizing of that, op- of that option yes. uh, well, is that like also a generalized principle yeah sometimes we do we just assume that if somebody had just as easy of an option to do it in a hetero way that we presume that they did it okay but anyway let's take a look at the next Mishnah so now that was the that was the sugya of Prismo, very fun sugya now we move on to a completely different sugya which is interestingly although we're obviously in the broad uh, rubric here of Tikkun Allah this Mishnah does not mention Tikkun Olam and it's not even going to be clear from the Mishnah what case is the Takana and what the Tikkun Olam is that is being achieved and that will be left for the Gemara to unpack so let's take a look yes did you say that after Shemitah is automatically yes that's on the last day of Shemitah, like the last minute of Shemitah. Rosh Hashanah of the eighth year, it's, it's a, the, the debt no longer is, is, is an old. And Rosh said you're not supposed to demand it on Shemitah. During Shemitah, right. What do you, when is this little uh, interaction taking During Shemitah. Okay, yeah. yeah, according to the way the Rush read it, right. Okay. So a slave is taken captive and he was redeemed, right? They, 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 they ransomed him back to the master. So if he was redeemed for the sake of going back into, into servitude, slavery, so then he goes back to his master or whatever he goes back into servitude however if he was redeemed presumably not by his master other people found out that a slave was being taken captive and taken away you know by this foreign force and they redeemed him and they figured as long as they're redeeming him they might as well set him free it wasn't their slave so presumably that would be the circumstances then he does not go he does not get re-enslaved he actually does go free all that makes a lot of intuitive sense Either way, he remains a slave. Okay, again, not clear exactly who's doing the tikkun olam and what the tikkun olam is that is being achieved, assuming that there is a tikkun olam, which would be the only explanation of what it's doing in this parish. Let's take a look at the Gemara. What's the case? If the master has not given up hope of retrieving the slave, now you have to realize that even though we're obviously talking about a human being, the slave is legally considered to be property, right? So therefore, similar principles, imagine that they hadn't taken my slave, but they had taken my, you know, my car, right? So the same proper principle, pr- pr- the, the general principles about yeyosh and shinurishos, once I give up hope of retrieving it, it can be possessed by the person who took it, right? Or by the, uh, the third party that takes a hold of it. People know those general ideas, right? About Aveda and Geneva, you give up hope and somebody else gets it, it becomes their 
their object. So that's, thank you, that's so much. That is the basic idea that is operating here, okay? So, if it's before the master has given up hope, um, right? Um, so, just because he's redeemed for the purpose of being a free, a free man, again, it's not the master who's redeeming him for that purpose, so why does he go free? He's still totally my property. What right do you have? It's very nice that you bought my car off of this, uh, off of this Ganef, but it's still my car. Give me my car back. You know, maybe I have to pay you some money, right, to, because you paid, you paid money to get it, but why do, why do I lose ownership of it? All right? It's still mine. Okay, so am I It must be that I've given up hope. And since I've given up hope, that basically means I'm no longer master over it. We won't go to the exact details of Yeresh and Shin Rishus, okay? And therefore, you are free to redeem that slave and to set him free and to make, for the purpose of him being free. So if that's true, we should never have so, but okay, but if I've given a whole hope and he stops being mine and he stops being a slave, then why, when you redeem him to remain in servitude, does he remain in servitude? He should already be a free man. I've given up hope and maybe that's enough to say. Okay, so we'll see. But that's the question. So, Amar Abaye, so now we're going to have two answers to this. Amar Abaye, Le'olam Lifneyesh, it's for four years. Le'shum Eved, for the sake of a slave, Yishtabed Rabarishon, obviously, because he's still mine and I haven't given up hope. So, Le'shum Ben Chorin, now here's the question. So, I haven't given a hope. Totally my property. Somebody redeems him as a free man. Why does he go free? Not so, now. Then he. I can't. I can't enslave him. And the people that redeemed him can't enslave him. Obviously, the people that freed him can't enslave him. They they they, they, they redeemed him. They redeemed him to go free. So any claim they might have had, obviously they're they're not taking any claim to him. They redeemed him to be a free man. Now why? Don't I get him back? It's my slave. I didn't give up hope. Very nice you redeemed him. I don't care what you had in mind. It's my slave. Give him back to me. So no, Namilo, Dilma Mimni Velo because we want to incentivize people to redeem the slave. Okay, it is true the slave, he's still property, but remember, he's owned by Jews, presumably well taken care of. He has he has obligations in mitzvot. He's taken by these marauding troops, right? He's gonna be presumably he might be mistreated, right? You know, they're violent marauding troops, whatever they are, he's not gonna have the opportunity to do mitzvot. We are not happy with this situation. Objectively, that it's a bad thing, right, that the slave is now taken by these other by you know by, by you know by, by you know by this foreign power or whoever these people might be. So we want the slave to be not in that situation. Okay? So whether it means going back to the master, whether it means going free, we want him to not be in that situation. So we're going to incentivize people to redeem him. And we're going to tell all of those bleeding heart liberals out there that if you redeem this slave, you have an opportunity to set him free. Normally he wouldn't be able to be set free because he was being held by his master. But now if you redeem him for the sake of him going free, he will go free. And that will incentivize people to go ahead and to redeem him. Okay, I'm being a little facetious, but, you know, maybe it's also just like the, uh, that, that people will, the way sort of Rossi Borg explains it is, if he's just a slave, I'll figure, eh, big deal, it's just a slave. But if I know that if I redeem him, he goes free, then I'm thinking about him as a potential free man, that'll make me more feel like, ah, oh, this is somebody important that's willing to redeem. Okay, so that might be, that's the less nice way of saying it. But, the words, below Pirke, and not to free him. No, if you do not, if he does not go free, right, if you say that he has to go back to the first master, people will hold back and not redeem him. And that's why he doesn't go back to the first master. Even though it's before Yehush, he logically he should go back to the first master. Right. But if he does 
people will hold back and not redeem him. So the language is Mimane will appear to prevent No, Mimni, no, not prevent. People will hold back and they on their own and won't redeem him if you tell him to go back to the first master. Uh, so to prevent people from not redeeming him, to incentivize, we're going to say that if you redeem him, he'll go free. I don't think people are that noble. I think just the opposite. In other words, you know, if I don't get anything out of it, why do I redeem him? But if I can get him as a slave, it's less the market value. No, but people so, are, right, but there's a sense of a mitzvah, there's a mitzvah to be, you know, podeshvuyim. So I, I think, yeah, there's a mitzvah to be podeshvuyim, but well, that's all be, uh, you know, it's like, it's like really if they're only free Jews, like, you know, we sort of feel put slaves in the second class test. Oh, you're telling me he'll be a free Jew, then I sort of see this as my obligation of pidgin shvuyim. That's sort of how it gets worked out, okay? So that's the idea. So according to that, the tikkun olam is that he goes free when he's redeemed to go free, even though there's no yeish. He's totally his master's property, but we're going to incentivize people to redeem him and for the sake of him going free. That'll help people, or to, if they do it for that reason, he'll go free, and that'll be the tikkun olam. That's the position of the chachamim. Comes of No, I'm sorry, I don't buy any of that stuff. He's still totally owned by the master. There's just as much of a mitzvah to be potash ruyim if they're free and if they're slaves, and therefore, it's, uh, I don't think you have to incentivize people. Okay? So that's the question of, that's one way of framing the tikkun olam. The tikkun olam is that he goes free if that's why they were freeing, if that's why they were redeeming him, even though he shouldn't. It was before Yeish, but that'll help get people to redeem him. That's one approach. Okay, that's, uh, who was that? That was, uh, who said that approach? Uh, Abaye. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, Rav Omar, now Rav has, is obviously he's going to take the other task. No. So Rav says, we're dealing with If it's before Yeish, you're right. Totally my property. I wasn't Yeish. I don't care what you had in mind. Give them back to me. Maybe I have to pay you for your expenses. We'll figure that out. But give them back to me. That's before Yeish. That's when we're talking about. Now, if you redeemed him for a slave, you know why he's still a slave, even though it's Yeish? You get to enslave him. If you redeemed him because you wanted to take him as your slave, it's like a Yeish even though I was Miyaj and I lost my claim to him he was not yet a free man you redeemed him from the from the captors so you take possession of him that's if it's Lushem Evet now Lushem Ben Chorin if it's to be free Lo Yushabe Lo Rabbo Lushem Lo Rabbo Sheni then obviously he's free for, and he can't be enslaved by either Lo Rabbo Sheni Lo Da Lushem Ben Chorin Parke to the second master because you're not trying to enslave him and Lo Rabbo Rishon Lami Lo the Halacha Yerushu it's half years that's a very nice explanation that has the Chachamim saying the Iker Hadin the Chachamim aren't saying the Tikkun Olam they're saying the Iker Hadin it's after Yerush so he can be taken by a second person but if the second person doesn't take him doesn't want to possess him then he's released by the person holding him nobody's taking a claim to him so he goes free he's not owned by anyone and he goes free okay so that's the Chachamim are saying it's La'achayers and what they're saying is Mi'ikar Hadin that okay that he's either taken by taken possession by the second person or he's freed based on the second person's intention okay that's Rava so what's Rav Shimon Gamliel and Rav Shimon Gamliel is making the Tikkun Olam and it's a different type of a Tikkun Olam either way he's enslaved now why? It was Miyayish. Nobody's trying to take possession of him. Well, okay, that would be that would be a separate question. How do you determine that? But that's not our issue right now. Okay, the Amar Chizkia said, "Why do they say either? Why do Rav Shmuel say either way he's enslaved?" Because if a slave knows 
that if I go ahead and get taken by captors as a way to get out of uh, you know to get away run away from my master I'll get redeemed yeah, and I'll go free and I'll go free well maybe but anyway they said like you know they had a deal with the concern of runaway slaves so therefore they made a special prakana that the slaves go back to their masters even if logically they should be free because there was Yehosh and, and the, the, the second one did not want now which master does he go back to it's not a little totally clear Rashi says I mean Sashi says where's Rashi uh um, one minute he clarifies which makes sense because if you want the idea is if you want to disincentivize slaves to run away you want to let them know whatever they try they're going to go back to their master now whatever because if the second one wanted to take possession of him presumably the second one would take possession of him but even if the second but either they'll go, maybe they'll be taken possession by the second one but if the second one is doing it for the sake of um, oh no excuse me when Maji says excuse me Rashi might be understanding that even if the second one redeems him for the purpose of enslaving him to himself we are making a takana that he's always going back to the Rabba Rishon right so I mean look it's very difficult to read these like you know these are like you think about these runaway slave laws in the south and all of this this is what's happening okay but it also makes you appreciate the issue about Tikkun Olam. Tikkun Olam is not always these nice sort of liberal ideas, you know, that we think about that sometimes people assume with Tikkun Olam. The Tikkun Olam is, we got a world in which slaves are an important part, commodity, important part of the economy, and we can't have them running away. So the Tikkun Olam is that even in situations where they should be able to be going free, or at least going to a, a different master who might be a better master, right, and there, maybe we want to incentivize them to run away if they're being so oppressed. No, no, no. Our Tikkun Olam is they're always going to get returned to their first master. We can't have slaves running away. Way, right, so it's a very different way of looking at it. Okay, so one way is the tikkun olam is that they go free um, when they're redeemed to go free, and it's before yeyush, and that to incentivize people to redeem them. And the other tikkun olam it's la'acha yeyush, and they really should either go free or go to the second master. But the tikkun olam is they always go back to their first master. All right, everybody got that? Those sort of two scenarios. Yeah. Well, this Torah mentioned about uh, runaway slaves does not get returned. Only Hebrew slaves. That's also understood in the context of running from chutzpahs. Israel, and it's um, yeah, so it's a good question, but it's uh, and I think we're actually going to get to it later in the Gemara, but it's not directly applicable, but it's a very good question. Okay, so the Gemara says like this. Um, okay. Okay, so Mesa, I'll ask you this. I'm a member of Shimon Gamliel. So here we have a brighter. Shimon Gamliel said to the Chachavim, Yeshem Shemitzel Lishtosas Benechorin, Kachmitzel Lishtosas Avadim. It's the same way it's a mitzvah to redeem slaves, it's a mitzvah to redeem free people, it's a mitzvah to redeem slaves. So why is he saying that? That works perfectly according to Abaye. Because Abaye says that that's why the Chachavim said he goes free to incentivize people. And when Shimon Gamliel said, no, you don't need to incentivize them, it's the same mitzvah. So Bishim Labaye, the Amalis Negeosh, is before Yeosh. So Hainu the Kama Kishain. So that's why the Tanakam is saying, we got to let him go free because that will incentivize people and we're going to say you don't have to let them go free they don't need to be incentivized okay but Rav says it's and the Chachamim are just saying the normal halacha and Rav Shimon Gamliel is coming and creating this takana to make all the slaves go back so high kashem what do you mean he's saying oh look there's a same mitzvah to redeem them that's like irrelevant to the discussion he should be saying what about chizkia what about making sure that slaves don't run away so I'm a lecha rava rava will say that there's a pretty darn good proof that at least this Breitah interprets it like a baye so I'm a lecha rava rava will say back to you okay this is a nice way out of it 
it. He didn't know what the rabbis were saying. The rabbi said, you know, in this case, slave, in this case, go free. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, If you're saying before Yeish, and then you're coming up with this weird idea that they go free to incentivize people, you're wrong. So, you're wrong. You don't need to incentivize people before Yeish. Um, and what you're saying is that it makes sense that he goes free, if that's how he was redeemed. Then, then, I also say you're wrong because of Chizkiah that we should actually make a takana to make sure that all slaves go back to their masters. Okay. Now the verse is like this. If after Yeyush and according to the Chachamim, Chachamim who don't have a takana, if he's redeemed to be, to be take enslaved by the second master, he is enslaved by the second master, it's like a Yeyush and a Shina Rishus. So the Gemara says, Shani Miman Kaniwe. Who did the Shani buy him from? Okay, meaning now the captors. But the question is, is that the point is, the Gemara is sort of assuming if the captors have no rights to the slave, I mean, there's a whole discussion in the Rishonim how to exactly conceptualize this, but the idea is like this. If the captors have no right to the slave, then after Amiyash from the slave, he basically at that moment is ownerless. Why didn't he go free at that moment? Yeah. Okay? I steal your object, your Miyash, I'm the Ganav is Konish. Ah, so in general we say that by normal cases of a normal Ganav, there's something called Kinyane Gneva or Kinyane Gzela, that he has some type of ownership over that, not full ownership, but some type of an ownership over that. Now, that, that's the most question that it's asking here. Where do we have this idea that these non-Jewish captors can get ownership, a partial ownership over the slave? And the presumption is that if they didn't have that, then if there was Yeyush, and I would, the owner was Miyayish, the captors have no rights on the slave, so that itself would make him a free man. So the idea that he still remains a slave and he could be transferred to the hands of another master presumes that the captors have some control and some ownership over him. So the says, where do we know that from? Okay, so let's take a look. Um, for example, just one example. One example? He was bought, he was uh, enslaved, he was uh, taken captive uh, like, like people became slaves. Non, Non-Jews were at war. They, uh, you know, w- w- the, 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 uh, the, the victorious troops enslaved the, uh, the, other, the, the other thing and then the sold them and the, the, and the Jew bought them. Yep. That would be an example. And we're actually gonna and we're actually gonna see some of that right now. Okay, so let's take a look. So the message is like this. Um Okay, so Shavai Gufei Mi Kaniwei. How did the how did the captor get any uh, ownership over the slaves? So the Gemara says, what? Mi Shavai from the captor. Shavai Gufei Mi Kaniwei. Yes, Kaniwei Lamasa Yadav. He doesn't own him fully as property, but he at least has rights to his labor. Okay, now by the way, I do want to say that this is similar to an idea, it partly has to do with the nature of owning human beings as property, and obviously, and you know, to what degree can they be owned as property or just owned for their labor? Slaves that are non-Jews are owned as property. Um, but, the other issue is about how you understand Kinyane Gnev and Kinyane Gzela. If I go and I steal Michael's car, right, we just said that there's something called Kinyane Gnev, and it doesn't mean I own it. I don't own it. I mean, I would have to give it back to him if he finds me. Um, but what it means is, here's actually one application of that halacha. Well, it could mean I'm responsible, but ownership normally also suggests rights, not just responsibilities. And one application of this is that if I actually, Michael finds me and I give him this back, I don't have to pay him any, any rental fees. Okay? <laughs> Which is a funny idea. Here I was, I stole it from him, but nevertheless, 
I suspected it was in my possession and I was in control and I was trying to take possession of it gave me some de facto rights of usage. It's a bizarre idea, but that's the idea of Kinyani Geneva. Okay? Yeah, I mean, yes. And I pay it back and I don't, again, like pay any usage fees. So here, that's exactly being paralleled here. The captors own him, not fully as property, but they own him that they're entitled to his labor. But because they have that type of a partial ownership over him, um, a de facto partial ownership, he does not go free even after Yeush, and he transfers into the hands of the third party who frees him to inflate him. Okay. Alright, yes. Anyway, well, let's not go there. So Moses is like, wait, let's, what? To a husband and wife, work hand. That's exactly what Michael said. Yeah, there are parallels to that. Oh, no, it wasn't exactly what Michael said. Anyway, yes, there are parallels, the whole idea of Masa Yodav. Let's read another line. John, you had a question? Or? Okay, let's read another line. It says like this. Okay, Masa Yodav. Now here, I explained it because it was a perfect parallel to like a Gneva Gzela situation. But now what Reish Lakish is doing, or the Gemara is doing by quoting Reish Lakish, is it's putting it in the larger context of general idea of enslaving human beings. Okay? And here is a strange idea, which is that Jews can own non-Jews as slaves as property, but non-Jews can only own non-Jews as slaves as like, as like, as like indentured servants. They own them for their Masa Yadayim, but not fully as property. Very strange and deeply disturbing idea. Okay. How do you know a non-Jew can own a non-Jew if he's trying to enslave him for his, uh, you know, for his labor, but not fully as property, but he does own him for his labor? The verse says, So there you go, Dov, that's your Pasuk. From the, those that are, that dwell among you, you can buy from them slaves. That's the Pasuk. Buy slaves from the non-Jews dwelling among you. Okay? So the Gemara, so the Drush is the following. Mehem tiknu, atem koni mehem. You buy from them slaves and they become fully slaves. They become property. Okay? Uh, your property. The lohem koni mehem, but they cannot buy slaves from you. You you can't sell yourself as a slave to non-Jew. Now, you can, as we're going to see, because Michael correctly remembers, in those psukim, it talks about a Jew selling himself as a slave to the non-Jews, but the point is, not as property, for Masayadayim. Okay? So you can, so I'm going to sort of anticipate already the end of the Gemara just to clarify this. You can buy them as property, they cannot buy you as property. They can buy you as slaves for your Masayadayim, but not, but right. The lohen konim zemizeh, and they can't buy each other as property. So here's the irony. They go ahead and they, you know, attack uh, another nation, enslave the people. They only own them for their Masayadayim. Then they go ahead and they sell them to the Jews, and now the Jews own them as property. Okay? So they can't own you as property. They can't own each other as property. The only people that can be owned as property, this is so deeply disturbing, I can't even say it. The only can, the way a slave can be owned as property is a Jew owning a non-Jew. Unless okay? A Jew, right? They assume the following social reality. Yep. That if Tikkun, by Jewish law, not to allow a pagan to own a human being as property, because it'll be too abusive. Uh-huh. It has to be so. Whereas, better. Okay, that makes it better. Better for a pagan to be owned as property by a Jew than for a pagan to be free. It's not like the only thing forced I don't know about free, it's not his own. That's a different conversation. But the idea is certainly to think about like, well, she would meet Sriam, that like, but it's still, I, 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 we can't trust the non Jews and the pagans, right, to own each other as property. The only people that can be trusted to own slaves.
slaves as property is the people who themselves were enslaved and owned as property. Right. Okay, anyway, that's the point. The only people that can be owned as property is you can own them as property. Okay. Then the brighter goes on. Okay, Yocha. Um, Yoho, let's go back talking about principle. Yoho, Yoho, Now the Brighton continues. Maybe they can't own one another. So the Gemara interrupts the Brighton because before it finishes its sentence, like some of you do here with me. So what do you mean? Hamarta, Lohin, Koning, What do you mean maybe they can't own one another? You said they can't own one another. No, Hachi, come This is what the Brighton is saying. Lohin, Koning, Gufa. They can't want to own one another as fully as property. Um, you know, Yoho, Yiknuz, but maybe they shouldn't be even able to own one another even for their ma'aseya daim even for their labor of their hands Amarta of course if that was true how could you ever buy slaves from them if they couldn't have any ownership anyway Amarta Kavachomer now that's a Kavachomer Ovi Kochom Yisrael Kona an Ovi a non-Jew can own a Jew for his labor right that's what took him in the Torah that you sell yourself to a Jew you're taking you know if you have those cases where you know you where, uh, where you have to you know, although in the context of Shemitah where you have to raise money and whatever you sell yourself as a, as a slave so they can own Jews as uh, you know for the Masia Dayim certainly they can own one another for Masia Dayim so they own one another for Masia Dayim they own you for Masia Dayim you actually can own them with Gufo okay and that explains the Shavai captures the slave he owns the slave with Masia Dayim and then he's bought by another Jew and the other Jew now is able to take possession of him with Gufo right you got the idea right the actual full ownership of property right the slave doesn't go free because the non-Jew is still, in, you know, sort of controlling and has a deg- and has a degree of ownership which prevents the slave from being freed, even though I've given up hope of getting him back. And then the other Jew is now able to take possession of him, Lagufo, because a Jew can own him, Lagufo. Okay, so that's how that works when he redeems him in order to enslave him. Right. So Rashi discusses. All right. So if you want to look at the Rashi, let's look at that. I mean, I was certainly focusing on it purely and economically, but it is important. You're right. So let's look at Rashi. So what's the implication about Lagufo? Get, right? One issue is how does a person get, stop the slave? If you own them as property, you need actually a writ of manumission. You need a, a, a get uh, that changes their status. If you only own them lima aseyadayim, then you can more just like re- uh, uh, like renounce your ownership, right? It's sort of like I, it's only I could be like I don't know, mafkia my property. I, I I you know I release you know I no longer make any claim to it. So whereas if it's really about full ownership of identity and as person as property, you need to change their status and you need a get. That's one issue. Um, or that's also related to the issue about personal status right that is, if he's being owned by a non-Jew he can become Jewish right so you know the idea that his full personal status and identity is defined you know by him being a slave that's only when he's owned Legufo so there's two aspects of being owned Legufo right one is a purely um, Dine Mominus aspect you know like again like a simple example is I put something on your slave, you own it because it's on your property. It's just a simple fact. He's a piece of property, right? That's one relevant aspect of being owned the gufa. As opposed to if you own his labor, you don't actually own his body, that halacha wouldn't apply. But Rashi correctly, and thank you Michael for pointing it out, points to the idea that owning some, a person as property goes more than just a technical question of how much do you own. If he's owned as property, it's a status issue. His whole status and identity is a slave. And if his status and identity is a slave, not just that you have rights to his labor, then that means that 
right? To change that status, you need a, 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 a get shechur. You need a rid of manumission. It's also like the way you need a get for a woman. It's about changing status. The person can't make a choice. I'm going to become Jewish. I'm going to whatever, right? It's all, his whole status is defined, you know, by that sense of ownership. So that's a very important to point out that that's part of what owning legufo means. Well, Right? If he's Megayer, he's Mutter Bavat Yisrael. If he's what? If he's, only if he's taken by a non-Jew, yeah. okay, and then he's Megayer, so a non-Jew owns another non-Jew, Lamasi Yadayim. Right. That non-Jew who's a slave can be Megayer because the other, his identity isn't defined by him being a slave, and now he's Jewish, and now he's just Jewish, and somebody else owns his Masi Yadayim. He's like an Evadim or whatever. He can right. still go ahead and marry about Yisrael. He's fully Jewish. But he's owned the Gufo. His whole identity is defined by saying he doesn't get to redefine his status. He doesn't get to be Megayer. But he runs away. We, 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 we. Oh, that's not going to run away. Oh. He doesn't get to choose to be Megayer. Okay? His whole status is defined by him being a slave. Yeah. If I, as the master, want to free him, that's a different story. Okay? I don't, I don't understand how to read this Talbot How do you read the if, if, if a non-Jew can own a Jew for Masi Adayim... What do you mean? If an Ovi Shochem owns a Jew from Masi Yadayim, Ovi Shochem Ovi Shochem Lakol Shein, certainly they can own a non-Jew from Masi Yadayim. Okay. Alright, the Eim Mahani Nili B'Kaspa. Now, one minute. Maybe this only is through money. A non-Jew owns a Jew. How does a non-Jew take possession of a Jew from Masi Yadayim? When the Jew sells himself to the non-Jew. Okay? But, but, uh, or, as Rashi says, in general, how would a non-Jew take possession of land? If you think of slaves as land, through money, and we learned that out from Sushir. Okay? So the whole idea that they can take possession of Mafia Dayim, we have the paradigms of a Jew selling himself as a slave to a non-Jew, or a Jew, non-Jew taking possession of land, the paradigms are through purchase. Okay? But but in this case, it's not through, there's no purchase. He stole him. He took him captive. And that's taking direct physical possession of him. Okay? That's a type of an idea of Chazaka. Normally Chazaka is, I'm willingly selling you my land and you do some act to demonstrate mastery over it and you take possession of it. You go and you build a fence where you dig a hole. This is a forceful chazaka. Okay? This is Tosus calls this kibush milchama. Okay? This is basically like might makes right. Okay? That I go ahead and I, and I just seize property in war. I seize your slave and I take it captive. That that idea of that fact that he's fully under my control and I seized him gives me some rights to him. Where do we get that idea? Okay? Because that's what happened. These non-Jewish captors stole my slave, and now we're saying they own him where do we know that idea exists? Okay, how do you know that works with chazaka? Maybe it doesn't work with Chazaka. I'm Rav Papa, so Rav Papa says, um, No, we know it from another case of real, of real, of, 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 you know, of Cheska's, um, uh, what do you call it, of, of, uh, Cheska, uh, Kibush, um, Kibush um, Mochama, which is the case about Amun Moav, right? Sichon took over the lands of Amun Moav. B'nai Israel took over the lands of Sichon, right? Everybody remember those stories in, uh, you know, um, whatever, in, uh, no, but in Shoftim, right, and also starting in uh, Midbar, but whatever. Anyway, but we weren't allowed to seize lands of Amun Moav, right? The Torah says, the Apatzer Moav, etc. We 
were allowed to because they stopped being lands of Ammon and Moab. They became lands of Sichon because he, he captured them. He captured them in war. Okay, the, that nation captured them in war. So you see, there's an idea of kibush mochama when something is captured by force and captured in war that makes it belong to that next nation. Okay, so don't read any. Now people are going <laughs> to talk about the most political and contentious stuff ever that we've ever had here. Okay, probably just contemporary situations. Anyway, so. Um, so anyway, so that belongs to that nation. So similarly, if that could be true about the land, presumably it's true about the people that were captured, captured, and therefore there is this idea of kibush Muhammad, something taken by force, actually gives them rights to that thing. Okay. So um, okay. So the Gemara says like this. That's when they took land from when non-Jews took land from non-Jews that they have an idea of taking possession by force. But how about if they take take for forceful possession of something that's owned by Jews? How do you know that that gives them rights to it? So the Gemara says, the verse says, and they took a captive. And the fact that it's called a Chevy doesn't say that they took a person captive, but they took a captive captive means that that person became a captive. Okay, and that changed that person's identity. All right, so now we've established but that when they a, buy a they can't like capture a free man and enslave him and be Jew. Yes, they can, but lemasei adayim, not legufo. Yeah, no. Okay, so non-Jews can again own one another lemasei adayim. Own not own Jews lemasei adayim. The only person that's owned legufo is a Jew owning a non-Jew. Again, they're disturbing how we explain it. Anyway, but in this case, the non-Jews took my slave captive. Amiyayush, they still own him lemasei adayim, even though it was a forceful seizing. They own him lemasei adayim. And therefore, he doesn't go free, even though I'm the Aish, and he's able to be transferred to the possession of a of another Jew who wants to buy him and enslave him. All right. So now the Gemara says like this: How about if he actually ran out of he escaped from his captors? Okay. So in Eved it says it says here from like a prison, but it's understood in this context he escaped from his captors. He goes free. Because it will get shikhur. And not only does he go free, we would force his wrath master to write a writ of manumission to make sure that his you know, freedom was clear yeah, and unquestionable. We'll uh, well, maybe. Anyway, okay, but let's just read the Gemara. The Gemara is totally ignoring that Pasuk. We'll get to that Pasuk later. Okay, so the Gemara says, nah. Now let's see if this fits. Either way, he's enslaved. Whenever Abshim Gamliel appears in our Mishnah, we rule like him. Except these three cases, which I am not even going to bother to explain. Now, we will like Rabbi Yochanan. We will like Rabbi Gamliel says Rabbi Yochanan, which means he's he, he's enslaved. But there's another teaching of Rabbi Yochanan, which is that he escapes his captors, he goes free. So which is it? Is, is right? Is he enslaved? If he's going to this, he should always be enslaved once he's taken captive. This is an evidence escaping from a Jewish man. No, an evidence was taken captive, like in our Mishnah, but then escaped his captors. So then, why does he need a get shikhur if it's only the Masay Adav? Because well, okay, that's a good question. It might depend before or after Yehush, okay. But uh, let, let's anyway see what. Let's first figure out the Gemara, okay. So it says like this. Um, so the Gemara wants to know. Rabbi says he's. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan says we will like him. He's always enslaved. And here Rabbi Yochanan saying that when he escapes his captors, he goes free. So the Gemara says like this. All right. So that's what the Gemara says. Everybody's got their their their, their, their theory. Be shameful, Abai says the Gemara. It's good according to Abai. I'm glad that you're so in, in, like involved. Be shameful, Abai. So what? He makes sense of this. When does Rabbi Shimon Leo say he's enslaved? And when do we rule like that? Before Yehosh. Right? Before Yehosh. So uh, he totally remains enslaved. End of story. And that's the case in the Mishnah. The high Yehosh. 
when it says that he escapes his captors, he goes free, that's after Yeyush. Now, Dov says, so why does the master have to write against Shichur? Okay, so that's a separate question, which is, let's say, forget that I was Miyayi. Let's say I said explicitly, I am master Mayavid, I renounce any ownership over my slave, does he need to get Shichur or not? So, we're going to see in, the, in a few minutes, hopefully, or if not, whatever, soon, that he still might need, according to many opinions, to get Shichur, because that gets to the difference between owning him as property and personal status. It might be that if I'm Miyayish, or I'm Mafkir him, I no longer own him as property. I can't demand his labor, nothing. But his identity is still that of a slave. His personal status is still that of a slave. And to change the status issue, I still might need to start Shechor. Okay? It's true. He doesn't own him. I'm Miyayish from him. He's not, he cannot be enslaved. I cannot demand any work from him. But, but he's still not fully Chayv and Mitzvah. He can't marry a Jewish woman because it's a personal status issue is not necessarily changed by a Dine Mumminist sack. Okay. A personal status issue might need a star, a star okay. to change his identity. Is Jewish and Halakha requiring an Oved Kohavim to write against you? No. Requiring his original master. He's my slave. He was taken captive. He escaped his captors. He goes... So once he escapes the captors, he goes free, and I now am compelled to write him a Shachar. Rav Rishon. Okay. Uh, that, okay, that was what was in the Okay. Anyway, but we will see about that issue about ownership and identity and status. Again, going back to that Rosh we read before. Okay. So that, according to according to Abai, it makes sense. We will he remains a slave before Yeush, but when he escapes after Yeush, so it's after Yeush. Nobody owns him. He goes free, and okay, I write a star Shachar to address the status issues that's very nice that even after Yeyush we make this takana that everybody goes back to their master because we don't want people running slaves running away so we're always going to send slaves back to their master and according to Rabbi Yochanan we rule that way so what's the slave doing going free so it's a contradiction so Rav will say to you why do we make slaves go back after Yeyush if nobody's enslaving them because of Chizkiah, because we don't want slaves to, uh, you know, to, to, to escape. I mean, to run away from their masters. But Shani, we would not apply that when he actually is escaped from his captors, as opposed to have been redeemed. Why? What difference does it make? But Shani. If he's willing to risk his life to run away, he obviously, because presumably the, the penalty would be death if you ran away from your captors. So if he's willing to risk his life to run away, he's certainly not intentionally putting himself in that situation. Right? Do you remember the reason for Chistia, why we send slaves back to their masters? So they don't intentionally let themselves be taken captive. Everybody with me? You remember that? Right? We don't, so in order so they don't, don't say, oh, I'll let myself get taken captive. It'll only improve my lot or whatever. No, 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 no. If you're taking captive, you're going back to your master. Okay? But this guy's demonstrated how he, that he's willing to risk his life to not be a captive. Because if he's found escaping, he'd be put to death. So in that case, maybe we have Rahmanas on him, but we certainly don't need this Takana in such a case when somebody is really willing to risk their life. Okay? Clearly, they did not intentionally put themselves in that situation. Alright, so now the Gemara says like this. Um, okay. I'm uh, saying the uh, the maidservant of of Shmuel, um, Ishtavai was um, was taken captive 
Parkua, whoever, some people redeemed her. Lushum Amhasa, it's to remain a servant for Shmuel. They figure they do him a favor. So they redeem, okay. So Shagrule, and they sent her back to him. Shalchule, and they sent him a message. That once redeemed a slave always goes back to the master. At you, Shmuel, you might want to be a big tzaddik and not take her back. Even if you are like the rabbis that say when she's redeemed to be free, she goes free. Don't worry about it. We redeemed her to remain your slave. So keep her. Okay, our gift. Okay, so Parkin we did it for you. Now here's the only problem. They assumed that the case was before Yeish, but that wasn't actually the situation. Shmuel actually had already been Miyaish from her. Okay, the Shmuel, and if you've been Miyaish, maybe the whole debate of Rizumali and the Chomim was Lifne Yeish, right? Laacher Yeish. Now, okay, it was might have been Laacher Yeish, but they were still doing it like Lishum Emet or something. All right, so why still? So let's take a look, um, but not for, the, for themselves as a slave. Uh, so, and Shmuel had no interest in taking her as a slave. So, Vishmuel, when we buy these two below Mishtabedla, it wasn't enough that he didn't enslave her. But not only that, she said she's a, per, a total free person, even without a writ of manumission. And here gets to the question of once you lose your monetary ownership, does the slave automatically become a free person, or do they need a writ to change their personal status? And Shmuel says that the two are intimately intertwined. And if you don't own them in a monetary way, then they don't need anything else. They're completely a free person. Okay? Um, um, uh, Shmuel, Shmuel says, If you renounce ownership of your slave, he goes free, and he does not even need a writ to change his personal manumission status, which means not only can you not enslave him, but he's fully chayav in mitzvahs, can marry a Jewish, you know, a, you know, a, you know, a Jewish spouse, or whatever, full halachic status as a free person, his halachic status changes with his monetary status. Shinemar, as the verse says, the slave of a man. So, I don't get it. So, he can't be a slave of a woman. What does it mean, slave of a man? If he's really enslaved, then he has the status of a slave. Once the master does not have any rights over him, monetary rights, his personal status changes as well. So, this is the case of La'acha Yeush. Shmuel did not, wasn't going to repossess her. They didn't want to possess her. So, she went free. It was like Hefker. And therefore, didn't even need a writ of manumission. Okay, let's just read one more story. Quickly, Amsei de Rebbe Abba Bar Zutra, the maidservant of Rebbe Abba, Ishtavai, was taken captive. Perka Hahu Tarmuda, a certain Tarmudai, a certain uh, non-Jew, um, redeemed her. Rishum Itata, as, and he wanted to take her as a wife. So Shalchule, so some Jews sent to Rebbe Abba, and they said, to, and they didn't want this non-Jew to take her as a wife, so they said like this, Shalchule Lididei, Iyeus Avdis, uh, so if you want to, so they said, look, do the right thing and send, set, and, and give your slave a star shechra. Now that she's in the hand of this non-Jew who wants to marry her, give her star shechra. So like, what? What's that going to do? So the mother says, hey, Chidami, what's the case? If these people are trying to help out and redeem her, why do they need him to send her star shechra, redeem her, and send her back to the master? If they can't get enough money to redeem her, what's it going to help to send her star She's being taken, held by the non-Jew. So I don't understand. What's the Shashikha going to do? She's being held by a non-Jew. So the mother says, no. Olam. 
the Matsu Parkale. They have the money to redeem her. Okay, or theoretically, but they need to raise it. So Kim and the Mashadullah gets it to Jerusa, but again, it's similar to the issues before about people are more incentivized to redeem somebody if they're free. So they said to him, look, free your, your slave in the hands of the non-Jew, then, then people will know that if they redeem her, she'll go free. She'll be a free person. Then they'll, be, they'll feel, oh, a free person is, to, is being held captive. They'll be more incentivized to redeem her. Okay? Then people will gather together. We'll be able to raise the money. The Ebay say, and if you want, I could say, they didn't have the wherewithal to redeem her. But, what if you sent her this star shikhur, mitzvah then it'll be public that she was a slave. This non-Jew doesn't want people to know that she's a, she was a slave. Okay, so it'll be public that she's a slave. He'll no longer feel, he'll feel embarrassed to be having her as his wife. And therefore, he'll lower the price and it'll be easier for us to redeem her. Right now, we can't afford it. But if you make it public that she's a slave and you send the star shikhur, he'll come down with the price and we'll be able to redeem her. No. But didn't the master teach? Uh, but you know, the non-Jews, they'll even take our, uh, you know, someone, such wonderful goodbyes. They'll even take our animals. So why would he be embarrassed that she's a slave of a non-Jew? That won't embarrass him to take her as a wife. So the says, no. Honey, nearly but sinna. That's if nobody finds out about it. They're happy to do that. Although before Hestia, to be publicly known as his wife, Zilabumilsa, that's embarrassing. So therefore, once it's known she's a slave, he'll come down on the price and therefore we'll be able, she was a slave and we'll be able to redeem.